Navigating the Storm, episode 17. Oh my god, consent is so sexy. Hi, I hope you've all had a wonderful time since our last episode. It feels like so long ago, it was only just before Christmas. I'm so excited to be back with not a new series, a continuation, but we've got some amazing guests coming up for you in the next few months. So for anyone who's new here, my name's Anna. I'm a personal development coach. I own three idiotic cats. I read more books than one woman ever should. And I also talk to amazing women and non-binary people about how they've taken the experiences that life's given them and turned that into power and into purpose. My guests aren't necessarily famous, although I know that both myself and today's guest would love it if Selma Blair dropped in for a chat. I love talking to people who've got something real to say about the world who can give us a new way of looking at it or something fresh to consider, a voice that makes you feel less alone if you're going through the same. Today, my guest is a fellow coach, a wonderful friend, an absolutely amazing human being. I am interviewing the wonderful Emily Jacob. I met Emily about four years ago, since then she's been an inspiration, a confidant, a cheerleader. She's got so many wonderful things to say and such a great way of putting them. So I'm totally, absolutely over the moon to be able to introduce you all to her. We're going to be talking about some quite heavy subjects. So before we dive into the interview, I'm just going to give you a little flavor of what we'll be talking about. Emily is, as well as all those wonderful things that I've just said, she's a survivor of rape. And as you may know, I am a survivor of domestic violence. So at times the conversation can get upsetting. I think it's a really powerful and valid conversation to be having. I think it's something we need to talk more about. So I really hope you keep listening But just be aware of where you're at, of your own sensitivities, and look after yourself as we go through. But don't worry, there are some laughs in there too. totally excited to have you on when I started writing my list of dream guests you were right up there at the top of the list so very excited (laughs) thank you so could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself yeah so I'm Emily Emily Jacob and I'm 47 and I live in Oxford and I've had a rather interesting life the last decade or just more than a decade or so since my divorce I guess life kind of went a bit downhill for a bit and I've kind of picked myself up dusted myself down and I'm in a place now where I feel like 
I'm doing good work and um, have purpose, which I never had before. My company is Reconnected Life and I'm a coach and I help women like me who've experienced rape and sexual violence and I help them to move past their past, go from living one day at a time and barely surviving to feeling like they are thriving and really living a full whole life that's totally reconnected. So that's the work I do with clients one-to-one and also um, working with charities now as well, helping them to provide help to their wait lists through online self-help psychoeducational program called Taste of Recovery. I think I've told you this before, but it was listening to you speak at the One Woman Conference a few years ago that was kind of a big turning point in my journey to becoming a coach to my own recovery. And I wonder, at what point did you feel like you wanted to turn what you'd experienced into something to help others? Yeah, well, initially, Anna, I totally fought against it. So the way the story goes, what happened was I had a lot of help in my recovery which involved some amazing work with a women and girls network in london um they saw me initially and then they saw me again after i'd had a breakdown two years later and then i was lucky enough to get help privately um through my corporate health insurance which oh my god i wish i had that still (laughs) such a dream Um, but I saw a psychiatrist for a couple of years and when I came out of that I still didn't trust that I was cured because I felt before that after I'd had the first medicine with the Women and Girls Network that I should be okay because I'd taken my medicine and then I'd fallen back into the abyss and I'd fallen into the abyss so many times that I just even when my psychiatrist said, no, look, with the work we've done, you no longer have PTSD. You may still feel slightly depressed for a few more months, but you are no longer depressed. You no longer have depression. And when I'd gone in to see her, she'd said I'd had chronic levels of disassociation as well. The kind of levels of that you'd see in someone who'd been in a war zone for eight years, not, not someone who had experienced a one-time event. So I was kind of messed up. And then she said that I wasn't anymore. And I did feel so much better, but I didn't trust that it could stay. And because when you get discharged from two years of psychiatric treatment, it's exactly the right time to quit your job and start a new business, which is just what I did um, exactly the same month. It was just the way timings worked with the restructuring that had been going on in the company at the time. And so my new business was doing something that I'd always done before, but doing it for myself in marketing. And I wanted to, as well as consult in marketing and work with marketing organizations, I wanted to also help marketing people become better marketing people. And so I wanted to train as a coach. And as a result of that training journey, I started unpicking layers within myself that I hadn't realized were there and actually started to feel like I knew I had the tools to actually face forward instead of feeling still in the past. 
and started to feel like I was putting myself back together, that I wasn't going to fall back into the abyss because I had tools that would mean that I could stay stable. And, you know, as we went through some of these techniques and tools, I just had all these light bulb moments of, I wish I had known this back then. I wish I'd known this, how to do this and that this could help. And then I joined the one of many family. You saw my speech initially. I was very uh, uh, sceptical um, of some of the things, but I joined and basically my journey with one of many was a big challenge in getting into my body. So that was like the final piece of the puzzle when I realized that it was body connection as well as many of the unconscious rewiring that NLP provided that helped. I was just like, okay, this is a whole bunch of tools that will be really helpful to people like me. And I fought against it for so long. I was like, no, I'm going to coach people who have experienced things that they might feel some shame about or feel some shame about who they are. I was also in my corporate life, I was founder of the LGBTQ network. So I wanted to work as well with people who felt like they couldn't be their full selves because of either their sexual orientation or because of their mental health status or because they'd suffered a trauma. And so I went into a workshop in Portugal that Joanna Martin was running that basically really, really challenged me on the fact that I was trying to package my services up for so many different types of people. And Jo just looked at me in one of the breaks one day and she's just said, Emily, just do it. You know you have to support rape survivors. <laughs> and I just, I just felt told. But suddenly there was clarity in actually, yeah, this is this is big enough for me to try to handle. I can't handle everything that I'm passionate about. And this is the thing that was feeling all the way through my coach journey that, you know, I wish I had known that I had the, you know, these tools at the time. It would have helped me so much. And so yeah, that's why I started Reconnected Life. And it's grown from there. <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting that you say, oh, you wish you'd had the tools at the time. Because I guess for me, I was in the situation that I started being coached by them at the same time that I was in that recovery phase. So I was going to meetings at Newcastle Women's Aid with the Freedom Program and learning all about how domestic abuse worked. But I was also being coached through the one of many tools and found that I was going in to the group a lot of the time and something would come up and I would be like, I know a tool for this. Like, <laughs> I know what we can do, guys. Get some paper. We've got this. And it was at the end of my first program of care with them that they said to me at the end, we need these tools for the rest of the women that we serve. We want to build it up and you're so good at explaining it. Have you ever thought of going off and training? And I'd seen you speak at the One Woman Conference and I was sat there while you were talking, just going, that's what I want to do. I kind of felt that initial scepticism, like you said, on my first day of the One Woman Conference, I felt like there was a lot of fairly wealthy straight women in the one of many community. Yes. And I was sat there as a little traumatized, disabled 
queer person going, do I really fit in here? And then you stood up and I was like, okay, there are people like me. I just need to find them. Yeah, I think that's the experience often for people like us is we often feel like the other in the room. And I think we need to, as we can find a way to open up to people, however sort of straight and homogenous, you know, everyone else feels like in a group from afar, when you actually get to know individuals, they are as mixed up as us as well, I think. Yeah. Uh, And when I was doing the planning for this, it got me thinking about how using our voices is so important. In my journey, I felt like there's been a lot of times where I've suppressed my voice, where I've been quiet, where I now, looking back, think I could have changed things if I'd used my voice then. What do you think about sharing your voice about personal experiences? I think it's an absolute privilege to be able to share. And I say that in two ways. I feel privileged that I can, but also I recognise that for so many people, they just cannot. It's not safe to share your story often. It's not safe often to say me too. And so because I can, I feel an obligation to speak out on behalf of of those who can't. And I think that the more of us who are able to raise our voices and say, me too, and this happened, and it wasn't right, and this is my experience, I think the more voices, the more frequently people can hear our stories, then the more normalised it will become to be able to say these things out loud. And more people in society in general will recognise that this stuff happens a lot and it's not all right. When things stay in the shadows, it's very easy to ignore them and just walk on by. But shining a light on the injustices and torturous existences of people really brings things into the open. Predators like to be hidden in the dark. They abuse us behind closed doors in settings where it's one word against the other. And to be able to bring those experiences into the light and share them with the world and to say this is not right, this is this happens a lot, I think is really, really, you know, necessary work. And I'm so grateful to see more and more people sharing their stories and their voices. And when I first started Reconnected Life as a coach working with people who experienced sexual violence. I discovered that there was one person in the UK I could find who was also doing it. And I found a coach out in San Francisco who was kind enough to kind of mentor me and let me know about her journey. But we weren't there. And now, what, four years later, There are many of us who are working in this area and it's so needed. It's absolutely needed. Counselling has an absolute place and it's very much, you know, and it was a necessary part of my journey and it's a very necessary part of many people's journeys. But it can be so hard to find the right help. It also often doesn't connect with body it's often very much a talking therapy which does just one part of what our healing needs to do but we need to connect to body and we need to connect to the future and what coaching does is it really helps to focus on the person that they are now and where they want to be rather than always focusing in on where they came from when i went to newcastle women's aid 
one of the big thoughts that was in my mind is that domestic abuse didn't happen to people like me. I think I had this really preconceived idea that it was for working class women who had were on low income, had no other options, that there was always physical violence involved. And so I sat there for quite a long time being like, I've got nothing to say because this isn't me. Like, I've had a difficult time with my marriage, but it definitely wasn't abuse. And as I sat in that first meeting, had a lot of people going, oh my God, that happened to you. He did what? And having moments of going, okay, maybe it does happen to people like me. Did you find the same through your journey and for the people you coach that there is this idea of it not happening to people like us? Absolutely. I actually only recognised my marriage as being abusive several years after my divorce and into my recovery treatment for the rape. But when I was raped, I thought rape was rare. I thought that rape happened to people who were not safe and mixed with the wrong crowd. (laughs) I was a white, privileged, middle-class woman, newly divorced from a very small social bubble. My ex-husband had been very controlling, which I hadn't recognised at the time. I thought it was normal, normal behaviour for a marriage. <laughs> That's know. just how it is, right? <laughs> yeah, just, just, just how it, just how it is. He ha- he has a temper, and so you you do your best to make sure he doesn't shout at you. Again, he was never violent towards me. But, you know, as I said, my psychiatrist said I had levels of disassociation of someone who'd been in a war zone. And that didn't happen from the rape. That happened from the 10-year marriage. But yeah, when I was raped, I was just like, oh, this rarely happens. I thought that it would be in the newspapers that there had been a rape in Fulham. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, it shocked me that it wasn't, it was... As soon as I started telling friends, lots of them started telling me that it happened to them. And I started to have my eyes open that this does happen to everybody. And I felt that because it only happened to people who had put themselves in bad situations that, you know, it was my fault because I'd been drinking and had trusted this man. And the myths around rape and sexual violence are absolutely poisonous in the survivor's journey to healing because it's... This is my hypothesis, Anna, that the self-blame is just as hard or even harder to overcome than the trauma itself very often. Like I'm letting that sink in. Say it again, the self-blame. The self-blame is just as hard or sometimes harder to overcome than the trauma itself in the recovery journey. Wow. I think that's an excellent hypothesis. I'm re-evaluating things about my own story as we speak yeah it's the stories we tell ourselves inside our heads I think which are often our biggest battle inside so as you know I live with chronic pain I have MS and you know they teach a lot when you're dealing with chronic pain that it's actually it's the secondary pain which is causing the most difficulty and I think self-blame is kind of that secondary pain from trauma And it's the stories that we're telling ourselves about the pain, about the trauma that cause us the most distress and can get in the way of the healing. When we can start to let go of our feelings about our feelings and our feelings about the pain and our feelings about 
the trauma, when we start to address those feelings, then it's not so big and we can start to watch it heal and scar over. And one of the biggest things that I found to deal with in my recovery was those moments where I was sharing my story and being met with other people's opinions on it as well. And I think that really fed into the shame and the self-blame I was feeling. Yeah, totally. When we share and we're not heard compassionately, that can set us back so much. I can't remember the statistics at the moment, but off the top of my head, it's somewhere in the region of 20% of women who have been raped don't tell anyone, not even their closest friend. Mm -hmm. And often when you do tell friends, if you tell the first person you tell and they go, well, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have gone out with him, you shouldn't have trusted him, you shouldn't have, you should have said something at the time, then that can stop people from then sharing with anyone else. Mm -hmm. I lost at least a third of my friendship group when I shared with people because of the way they responded that basically fed back those self-blame myths back at me. And it's absolutely disastrous not to receive the compassion and empathy and support from someone when you disclose for the first time. And yet when you can share in an environment that is compassionate and empathetic and supportive and non-judgmental, that's when the burden you're carrying inside becomes so much less and you start to be able to connect into other people who understand and who get it and you can feel that connection again. There's studies that have been done that have actually said that it's the most important factor in healing from trauma is the connections in the community that you have around you, the support you have around you. So, for example, after 9-11 in New York, all of the you know therapists, psychologists, uh, counsellors were expecting a deluge of people who needed their help, but they didn't come because New Yorkers rallied around each other. They, you know, they had community, they had support. And so there wasn't this, I'm not saying there weren't any, but there wasn't the huge influx of people needing trauma support as had been expected. You know, there's been work looking at people's brains um, change when they have support, etc. Bessel van der Kolk's book, What He Keeps the Score, is amazing on this. And that's one of the reasons why I set up the Reconnected Life community. So it's a secret Facebook group that is just full of people who have had the same experience and support each other. And you, you don't need to go into too much detail because the people who are there, they all get it and they all support you. So if anyone's listening and they want to find out more about that group, you can go to reconnected.life slash community. There's details there on how to join that. I totally resonate with what you were saying there. For the first year after leaving my ex-husband, didn't tell any of our mutual acquaintances why I'd left. I just kind of did the usual, uh, you know, sometimes marriages don't work out and this is better for both of us. And the moment when I started talking to mutual friends about it was the moment that I was met with the most criticism and had that mass shedding of friends like you described. And it was really painful. I, like you said, it's so important to be able to share what's happened to you in the safe environment. But it also leads me on to thinking about the criminal justice system 
and how the experience of that can also be disempowering for survivors. Oh my God, yeah. (laughs) Oh, the statistics is just shameful. I don't know what to say except yes, and it's shameful and it's got to get sorted out. Most survivors won't even report. And then the the rates of people going through the police referring to CPS, the CPS deciding to take on the to a case and then actually winning in a, in a trial. I don't have the figures to hand, but we know that they've been going in the wrong direction. There is some really important work going on now, which I'm very hopeful about for change. But change does come so slowly. It's a systemic issue of victim blaming from the start. The assumption is of presumed innocent in our criminal justice system. And that means that it is presumed that the main witness, the victim, is lying. And that is an issue, in my opinion. That is a huge issue because we know that the vast majority of the time the victim is not lying. There are very, very few cases of false allegations and it's actually more likely that a man will be raped than be accused of rape. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done around how the criminal justice system approaches this and also at a wider level how society views and talks about rape. We tend to spend a lot of time teaching our daughters to be safe and not about teaching our sons about consent. Yeah, and it's so interesting to me that you mentioned the younger generations. I'm not a parent either, but I have an extensive clan of nephews and nieces, and that was actually a very big driver in my decision to leave when I was at my most disempowered and almost not caring what happened to myself because by that point I'd lived it for 15 years. It was half of my lifetime that I'd known nothing but that. But I had a moment of considering my niece, Megan, who was actually on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and is such an inspirational force in my life. But I had this There was a a couple of incidents that had happened in the company of my family where my ex-partner had been what I would now call coercive control. He'd been doing things to adjust my behaviour in a way that was separating me from the support of my family. Mm -hmm. And my nephews and nieces had been there witnessing it. And it really stuck with me that I had shown Megan that that's how a husband can behave Mm. and you don't do anything and you don't say anything and you go along with what he wants and you separate yourself from your family and you leave family Christmas early and you sit miserably and silent because your partner is making things really uncomfortable for you and in those moments where my resolve was weakening that was a thought that really kind of kept me going is going I don't want this to be the lesson that Megan learns. I want her to look at the future and go, if a boy treats me like that, or if a girl treats her like that, that's not okay. Yeah, I'm so sorry that that had happened to you. And I am so, so proud of you for 
taking the steps that you've taken and doing all these awesome things that you now do. Just, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm feeling a little emotional. I've never shared that story before. Oh, bless you. But yeah, I think there is this big piece that's missing in terms of education of children that as well as all those myths like you say about the kind of person that these things happen to I think there's a lot of myths about what it actually is at all so what I'm meaning by that is the idea that sexual violence is involves penetration of some kind or that domestic violence is that they hit you those are examples of it but I think it's really easy for them to eclipse all the other types of sexual violence that's happening and all the other types of abuse that's happening. Uh, yeah, a number of the women I've worked with have come to the realisation late that what happened was was rape and wasn't right. Uh, some people have joined the community group and messaged me first, said, I don't know if I really belong because of this. And, and, I don't think it was and I'm like it was <laughs> you're welcome to join I think there are issues on the you know number of areas here is we often don't recognize that the behavior is not right because the perpetrator's behavior has often been normalized and the perpetrator will often try to make us feel that, that what they're doing is normal for example you know if a father is abusing his little girl he'll often be saying but this is how I show you love purposefully confusing the issue but then we also have an issue where perpetrators often don't recognize that what they're doing is wrong so if you ask somebody is forcing sex on somebody not right a lot of people will say actually yeah it's okay and if you use the word rape then they'll say no and so there's an issue with people really not understanding some of the time that the actions and the behaviours of what they're doing makes them into the person who they despise. Most rapists don't recognise themselves as rapists. They can't psychologically accept that that is what they are because as a society we have depicted a rapist as somebody who stands in the bushes and you know grabs people at knife point on the way home in the dark. And until we can start to understand that it's ordinary people who are fine upstanding citizens and every other aspect of their life who are doing this, then we have to be able to understand and accept that at a societal level psychologically and then at an individual level psychologically. I don't know the answer, but I think part of the answer is in better education, more talking about it, bringing discussions about consent and how you talk about consent and how you check for consent front and centre all the time. Yeah, and consent for me was a really big issue. I hadn't construed what had happened to me as rape for a lot of years. And the reason for that is that I'd always eventually said yes and it took a lot of learning and unlearning and reading to understand that being coerced into sex would still fall under that definition of rape that if I'd said no several times and then been manipulated into a yes that that wasn't good informed consent what messages do we need to be giving out about consent to the 
I was going to say to the young people, but to everyone really, what do people need to know about consent? Consent needs to happen joyfully and enthusiastically. I think enthusiastic consent is what we are aiming for here. And if you are not receiving enthusiastic consent for what you're doing, and even if what you're doing is just hugging someone, if they are pushing away from you, if they are not joining in in that hug, if they're flinching away, don't hug them. We need enthusiastic consent for any kind of body-to-body touching at every stage of the connection. If we don't have that, then we need to check in and say, okay, what's, what's going on here? No means no, and silence means no, and a yes under duress is not a yes. And this goes into, I mean, I'm kinky, and this goes into the the kink community too. And you know, a, a submissive needs to be enthusiastically consenting, even in a consensual non-consent environment, which exists. But that is enthusiastically talked about in advance. And the person who's, you know, you're playing with needs to know the signs, which means that that enthusiasm is gone in a way that's no longer acceptable. We often talk in the kink community about we have the communication skills to talk about consent because we are very much based on informed consent, understanding risks, understanding consequences. And yet we also have, you know, like all communities, we have people hiding in plain sight who are abusers. But so I think that everyone needs to understand enthusiastic consent is what we are aiming for. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me that you bring up the kink community. I am very much not kinky. But actually, when I was doing that reading that I talked about, the kink community was actually one of my biggest sources of information. Because like you say, it has normalized those discussions of what is yes, what is no, when do I check in? Yeah. And and also the punk community. It was a very varied reading time for me. (laughs) You know, some people in the community will have a list of, would this be okay? Would, would this be okay? Would, what about this? And, you know, is this is this a hard limit? You really don't want to go there? Or is this somewhere, is this a soft limit you'd like to experiment? And what are the signals that, you know, you're no longer okay? And people will check in. And sometimes you hear often straight hetero men complaining about the need to check in because they don't think it's sexy oh my god consent is so sexy you can make it really really thrilling (laughs) to be continually checked in with about are are you still okay with this i love that i feel like that needs to be a t-shirt like consent is so sexy emily jacob (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i don't think i was the first to say it Um, uh, but but thank you (laughs) but yeah consent is sexy Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and also for coming into my life, for becoming my friend. I value you so much, so I'm so thankful for you. Ditto. I'm I'm honoured and humbled that you think this way about me and I'm so grateful that I have you in my life. And yes, thank you for having me on this podcast. And if there are people out there listening who go, oh my God, I need Emily in my life too, how do they find you? The uh, website is reconnected.life. You can email me at emily at reconnected.life. And I have Facebook pages and Twitter pages. I'm at reconnectedm on Twitter. And yeah, you'll find me. (laughs) 
what a conversation. I hope that you found that useful. I hope that it was informative. And as we said at the end there, if any of these issues that we've talked about today are particularly personal to you, then please do reach out, whether that's getting in contact with Emily over the details she just used, sending emails, reaching out to someone you love. Please, please do find a way of using your voice if you can. Now, normally in my outros, I give a little bit of wisdom or a coaching tool of my own. But today, I really think that the conversation we had kind of stands for itself. So I'm going to leave you with a gentle invitation to come and chat to either myself or Emily and a little teaser of what we're going to be talking about next week. So next week, producer Mel is coming back on this side of the microphone, and we're also being joined by our good friend Gillian. Now, Gillian and I have been friends for a long time. I've asked her to come on the podcast to talk about ADHD. ADHD is something that I think we typically think of as hyperactive boys, and actually that is part of the picture. But there are a big unrecognized group of adult women with ADHD who present quite differently from the hyper little boys, but who the challenges of ADHD are showing up in their lives in quite a big way. And often, as I said, it's unrecognized. These women don't know they've got ADHD and have probably faced quite a lot of criticism for these challenges that they've got. So Gillian is someone who has had her diagnosis of ADHD for quite a while and from the awareness raising work that she does it has led to some personal revelations for myself and Mel which we'll be talking about then. So tune in to hear a little bit more about what ADHD is like for women, how to manage it and what we can do to change the conversation. I can't wait to share it with you. Navigating the Storm is hosted by Anna Knight and produced by Anna Knight and Mel Robinson. Mm-hmm.